Um, I'd go with uh, vodka. I'd actually go with bourbon, um, rum, tequila, although I think our tequila selection has been incredibly high end in what we're actually selling, which has kind of been interesting. And then I'll check for you here in a second on, on a fifth. I don't think I know the fifth off the top of my head. You, you said it wrong. It it's goes bourbon, 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 right? Brown, brown, brown and brown. <laughs> At least that's what we want to hear. We want I, to didn't hear. He, I heard the, 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 his mic cut out there when he said another word. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, everybody? It's episode 248 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny. We've just got just a little bit of the news to run through, and as you can guess, most of it relates to COVID-19. Pennsylvania state-run liquor stores are reopening, but only with online and ship-to-home orders. Until further notice, customers can purchase up to six bottles per transaction from a reduced catalog for 1,000 top-selling wines and spirits from the website. All orders must be shipped to home or non-store addresses, and only one order per address will be fulfilled per day. This is possibly in reaction to the losses now being seen by the government. In an article posted by TribLive.com, for the two weeks of not operating, the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board has lost an estimated $91 million in revenue, or around $6.5 million per day. Quite staggering numbers. And the Virginia ABC has announced that for a limited period of time, Virginia distilleries are authorized to ship their spirits to consumers and licensees in Virginia. Now, there's some legal mumbo-jumbo about addendums to these distillery store agreements, but it's another big win for consumers and for these distilleries to help everyone get through this period. You can get more information on shipping, including a full list of all 45 Virginia distilleries on the Virginia ABC website. Figures released by data analyst IWSR have found that for the week ending in March 22nd of 2020, that total beverage alcohol sales grew by 40% in value and 33% in volume compared to the same period in 2019. And this is to account for the stockpiling that we've seen during COVID-19. Spirits available in 1 liter, 1.5, and 1.75 formats have outpaced smaller variants, and the IWSR noted that the larger size formats and value brands tend to benefit from panic buying as people look to stock their home with as much as possible in the light of a lockdown. And according to IWSR, whiskey brands like Wild Turkey, Crown Royal, Jack Daniels, Bullet, and Maker's Mark have been the ones that have seen this most increased purchasing. All right, now to something not about the coronavirus. Buffalo Trace Distillery continues its exploration into oak tree varietals with the release of its old charter oak, Chinkapin Oak. This species of oak is native to the Midwest United States. These large Chinkapin oak trees are often found in parks and large estates. After the chinkapin barrels were filled with Buffalo Trace Mash Number no. 1, they were then aged for 9 years before being bottled at 93 proof. Now the suggested retail price is going to be a $70 SRP, and like all other releases in this series, supplies will be limited, and the chinkapin oak bourbon will be available in limited quantities starting in April. Now today's episode is one that I'm personally really excited about. I'm like a broken record on here preaching how the spirits industry needs a digital revolution. As we've seen with the impacts of COVID-19, it's now become a necessity for this industry to even stay alive. And Corey Rellis, the CEO of Drizzly, he was in the forefront of this years ago. And this podcast dives into how he even thought of the idea, into their business model, and how they're, how they're actually helping stores build a digital infrastructure to sell their goods online and get it into the hands of consumers faster. We hit on all kinds of topics, such as their competitors in the market, what shipping laws could actually mean for Drizzly, and is there an opportunity to even extend this business model into cannabis? Now, if you haven't noticed yet, we are doing lots of impromptu live streams to help give you some more entertainment during this time. We've done virtual happy hours with our Patreon community, late night blind tastings, and more. So make sure that you're subscribed to our YouTube channel to get the notifications. And also, consider joining Patreon. We're doing Zoom meetings to help connect our community, and we'd love to have you there. Check it out, patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit. Also, don't forget to catch Fred Minnick on his live streams every single day at 1 o'clock and 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. They've been highly entertaining and educational. Enjoy today's episode. Stay safe. Stay inside. Here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This past week, I'm just telling you, my brain has been suffering. I've been working so hard. I've been doing two live streams a day on YouTube. I've been writing a lot for Forbes. I've been blogging as much as I possibly can. And I hit a wall. I hit a wall where I had no ideas left in me, none in the tank. And I want to thank every single one of you who responded to my query on Twitter, where I simply asked, can you please give me some ideas for Above the Char? I got so many great ones. I'm going to start with this one from The Whiskey Stop. It's at The Whiskey Stop on Twitter. And he wants me to talk about the power of packaging. A unique shape of the bottle. Does it have a twist top, a synthetic cork? Maybe natural cork, a great or unusual label. Did it influence your purchase? Was it good? Did it suck? Did the packaging work its magic on you? What a brilliant question, and what a time-honored like truth is that packaging matters. Oh my God, does packaging matter. And let me tell you, if you overthink packaging, you will fail. And that is where you fail most of all when it comes to packaging. What I have noticed is, is that many people try to target women and they do it with like a, like a, a fluffy pink or they've got some kind of like special dressing on there and they have like rainbow colors and women reject it every single time. Another one is when someone tries to be overly fancy. They get like a, a crystal, uh, a major crystal top uh, a really fancy label, and then they fill it with like two-year-old MGP whiskey. That's a big fail. So the packaging always has to match what's inside the bottle, and the packaging cannot oversell something. So the overselling is the case of, of a brand that went too far with trying to attract women, and the whiskey not matching would be the decanter or the bottle that had shit whiskey in it and the bottle was just stunning. And I've always believed that to me, you can measure a bottle by what is fastening it or the closure. I am such a fan of natural cork. You can read my cover story in Bourbon Plus magazine to get an idea of like what goes into making cork. But I am really connected to the earth and I love I love the sustainability aspect of, of cork. And when I hear that pop, when I pull the, the bottle next to my ears and I go, that is an undeniable sound that makes my mouth water and makes me want a sip. A screw top doesn't do that. A lot of the synthetic corks are like stuck and they're like, they don't make that same uh, sound. Um, and the glass tops that are starting to become more popular, I could never get those things off. I have to pry them off with a damn, you know, butter knife. To me, it all starts with, with a good cork on the top. Now, people can argue all day long of the merits of cork, but I'm just here to tell you, I know what I like, and I like hearing this sound every time I open a bottle. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey. Listen, I'm bound to continue to run out of ideas with this coronavirus stuff going on because I'm not stopping. I am driving content every single day. So hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube and give me some ideas for Above the Char. I'll select my favorite and read it in the next episode. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky. And you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. 
Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny, Ryan, and Fred in our virtual hangout space, and today we are talking about a topic that we know far or should I say, we know all too well, you know, when we talk about this on the round tables, we talk about it, you know, with distributors, we talk about what is the future consumption and delivery of, of alcohol really going to look like for the, the mass market. And we look at, you know, coming from a, a tech industry myself, we try to figure out like, how can we get, you know, our product into the hands of consumers faster than anyone else. And what we're going to be talking about today is really talking to a company that's on the forefront of all this. And when we look at this, it's not only just being able to get in the hands of consumers, but you, you can get it in less than an hour sometimes. So I think it's going to be uh, a really cool conversation of, of how we really dive into this. So Fred and Ryan, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about shipping before, but have you all, uh, have you all ever had a service delivered bottles to you yet? No, not yet, but I'm super excited to learn about it. I'm fortunate enough. I live like a half mile from a liquor store, so uh, we can uh, get it pretty easy. But yeah, I mean, the liquor industry moves at a snail's pace. So, um, you know, there's a lot of friction points in getting bottles delivered to your house. And I've had plenty of bottles delivered to my house, just not legally, um, but uh, <laughs> uh, would like to make it legal. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to to talk to the, about this today. Yeah, I've had uh, I've had quite a bit sent to me. Uh, I also, you know, being uh, being a personality on the Spirits Network, they regularly send me stuff, and they, um, you know, that's part of their their whole thing is that you join and you, get, you become a club club member, and they ship uh, barrel picks and stuff to you. And so, let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So today. We have Corey Rellis. Corey is the CEO of Drizzly. You might have seen him or the app. You've seen probably their logo in a lot of liquor stores. They're the ones that deliver bottles from liquor stores to your doorstep. So, Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. So, was that a decent elevator pitch or, or do you have a better one that you usually use? Uh, it's a common misconception. So, I, I would actually like to give you my elevator pitch. Please do. Please do. Yes. Yeah. So, so actually, Drizzly was formed a lot uh, with a lot of knowledge around the regulations that you guys have been discussing. I know we're going to talk about that further, so I'll put that in the back for a minute now. But the model is actually different than people think. We don't do delivery. And really what Drizzly prides itself on is digitizing the inventory of local liquor stores so that a consumer can come online, shop across their stores, and find a larger selection, comparison pricing, and ultimately get that delivered to them. But the delivery is done by either the retailer themselves or third parties, the DoorDashes, Postmates, ships of the world. And so we're really a tech middleman empowering the three tiers, but not necessarily changing the status quo. Cool. So it's kind of like a, an open table kind of concept for liquor stores, maybe. Um, you're kind of looking at what's available and can then kind of pick and choose that way. 
Yeah, that's not a bad comparison. And, and Ryan, you were saying you live next to a liquor store. And I think that's really Drizzly's opportunity is not necessarily to replace the liquor store, but to provide an experience you couldn't get by going to any one liquor store. And that goes again back to selection, to transparency of pricing, to the service of multiple stores being able to get to you when and where you want it. And so I kind of want to roll back the uh, the hands of time here and kind of learn more about you. So kind of talk us through, you know, where did where did spirits become or did or is this just like an idea you had and you said like hey this is fun like this is a this is a, an opportunity that's that's basically ripe for uh disruption like what what got to the point of like you getting here and saying like okay cool like this is going to be a a, a a good venture to kind of go through yeah it's a it's a less sexy story than you might imagine uh and it started with regulations so going all the way back to my cousin nick uh nick relis and then co-founder justin robinson and it was born out of trying to figure out why alcohol was only 2% online or even 1.5% online when you saw a grocery, when you saw a restaurant, when you saw electronics and clothing. All these other verticals are coming online at a rapid rate. And we started to think about why that is with alcohol. And regulation became the clear component of this whole piece. And so we started digging into the legal code. I mean, truthfully, looking not only at the repeal and the prohibition, but also state-by-state liquor codes and trying to understand how does this model need to work for alcohol? How can a tech platform both empower the industry but not be a part of the industry and still be an unlicensed entity within it? And then the third piece is how do you carve your moat? How do you be more than delivery? Because you know when you start projecting five, 10 years down the road, that's a commodity at the end of the day. And so we need to be better than going to the liquor store and elevate the status, or I'm sorry, elevate the physical liquor stores to do something they couldn't do in the physical world. All right. So I don't know if you really answered my question there, because I really want to figure out more about you, right? Oh, like I avoid all of those, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. We want to get to know a little about you, right? I mean, like, like, where, where, like, so where'd you go to school? Like, where did, where'd this really kind of like, uh, really spawn from? Sure. So my road was, um, a little bit sideways. I uh, I grew up in Texas, um, and I would say that I'm a big bourbon fan for that reason. Grew up loving bourbon, actually, but was a soccer player at Notre Dame. Spent five years there, had a fifth year for soccer, and wanted to play uh, professionally after school. But a couple ACLs later, had to give up that dream, and uh, ultimately had done an internship after my first injury, kind of preparing just in case it didn't work out in the long run. And took a job out here in Boston at Bain Capital, their credit affiliate, Sankity Advisors. And that's when I started to to get to know businesses a little bit better. I started to get to know regulated industries incredibly well. I was dealing with coal and steel and some pretty pretty old industries at the end of the day. And then the three of us that I was mentioning um, started just kicking around ideas. And so this was a big jump for me. I was in, you know kind of the, the standard finance track at that point, thinking about what the next couple of years look like, whether it be business school or continuing doing what I was doing. And uh, it felt like the right time to jump. It felt like the right collection of pokes to, to try something new with. And a, a little bit of um, naivete got us to the final, to the finish line and, and pushed us over the edge. Wait, kind of like your own little incubator, if you will. We had a bunch of ideas. They were all terrible. Um, so <laughs> we, we struck out on a few. Uh, this one became, I mean, really the passion of the other two guys is, is what got me to believe. And then the more we dug in, the more we really peeled back the onion, the more we knew something was here, not just as a small company, but something that could really turn into something as a larger platform. Give us the timeline behind this. What was, um, you know, when, when did the light bulb, light bulb go off? Yeah. So 2012, um, the light bulb was starting to go off with the text of why can't you get alcohol delivered? And the response was, you can, you idiot. Um, And so that started down the rabbit hole of when you get called out to some extent, what do you have to do? You have to take the next step and figure it out. And so that's when we started researching the liquor code. And it's funny how things work in Boston being a good microcosm of this, but you ask one question, you get put in touch with the next guy who you can then ask the next question to. And it starts to unfold unto itself. And it's not necessarily, we saw some grand vision of what alcohol e-commerce should look like and, and what Drizzly has now become. But the next step was always apparent if you were willing to take the time. So 2012 was the idea. 2013 was the very first iteration and, and we've evolved since then. But bringing one liquor store online, uh, learning about consumers and what they're looking for, what e-commerce was. And then in the last three years, our models really accelerated. So walk us through like the state of the industry then when you guys are getting like, what did, what were liquor stores doing as far as inventory or trying to do online sales? What was kind of the state of the union when you guys got it started? 
I wouldn't say it's too different now. Uh, we're <laughs> sure. moving it forward, but uh, begrudgingly, I'd say for some of them. So what was fascinating about the current landscape, delivery did happen, but it didn't happen in the paradigm in which we have now moved it towards, which you could call a liquor store. You didn't necessarily know it was on their shelves, but you could say, you know, I'm having 10 people over for a party. I'd like to place a $500 order split between a couple of things. Can you make some recommendations? So there wasn't transparency into what you could buy, nor the price behind it. And you had to have big orders that the store was going to take the time, but delivery did happen to some extent. On the other side, um, e-commerce within this space was just like not even on the radar for regulators or legislators. You're talking about um, prohibition being repealed, that is still a lot of the framework and the intent behind the laws that are written. And so there was nothing to comment on e-commerce at that point. And one of the first things we did, I mean, this is the time of Uber, right? The cars are moving around you at the touch of a button. The world's changing because you have a phone in your pocket. And we're sitting here thinking, okay, well, how does it need to look for alcohol? And unlike Uber, we couldn't just get into a city, try to stoke up consumer demand, and then ask the regulations to be changed. That's just not the way this industry works. So we had to go the other way. And so one of the first things we did was go to New York State, uh, the liquor authority there, the uh, uh, SLA, and we uh, asked for a declaratory ruling relative to our model to basically say, not only are we, illegal, not only are we legal, but we're three-tier compliant. And we're doing things so above board that the SLA is willing to bless our model going forward. And so that was actually the first moment where it became not just a hobby, but very real and something that we thought we could then take and run with. So you you kind of said, all right, we need to sit down, look at the laws and figure out how we can sort of navigate these choppy waters. I would imagine when it, we've, we've talked about all the time, anytime you try to put any kind of disruption into this marketplace that there is, you're going to be hit hard with a lot of people that are lobbying against you. What were some of those like early conversations you remember having of people that were like, this will never work. Like you're not going to get it to fly. I have a hard time remembering ones that weren't like that, to be honest. Um, so I can speak to the other side easier. Um, most of it was doubt that this is a very slow industry to change. And you have pretty significant entities that control pieces of the supply chain. And if they're not on board, you're not going to have success on a, on a macro scale. Now, there's slices of it that can work. You could do direct-to-consumer wine. You could do shipping. There's different pieces of it. Um, but on a macro scale of trying to bring the physical footprint of alcohol online, we needed a few things to go right. One was New York. And funny enough, the, the woman, Jackie Flug, who blessed our model uh, as the general counsel for the New York State Liquor Authority, is now on our team. And she was um, kind of the veteran in the space. When she put her stamp of approval, that meant a lot to the industry. The second one was the wholesalers, the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America, and powerful group of people uh, in, in terms of their lobbying prowess and their space within the industry. And we got them on board uh, as a three-tier compliant model that could move forward the consumer experience in a way that they could get behind. So that was that was a big piece of it as well. So you talked about um, being a, going above and beyond what uh, the authorities there were. To, what, what were some of those things that kind of helped sell New York or they were like gave you that, that blessing? Well, I think transparency is the first thing, and not only transparency of communication, but transparency of the supply chain and what consumer is purchasing what bottles from what retailer. And if you can track all of that, which obviously tech can do and can really enable that process, that is a leg up from anything that's happening in delivery today. I think the second one was we came with an offering for ID verification through delivery that was, again, not only transparent but did it in such a way that they could have confidence that underage was not going to be a problem within this business model. Um, and then I think the third part was just being very descriptive on how the flow of funds work. And then also what Drizzly is and what Drizzly isn't. I, I think there's a line that needs to get drawn as to what is a retailer's job and competencies. And when you encroach on those too far, you start to erode the license that they have worked hard and, and need to live up to relative to what a software platform is doing on the other side. So it was more just a lot of learning and, and explaining who we are and how we do it. So I know the, the liquor laws, are they're different everywhere. I mean, every state is different. You've got to navigate that everywhere you're trying to launch. And so when I think of New York, one of the things that I know of, at least in New York, and who knows if uh, at least there's, there's plenty of stores that actually have websites in New York and they can deliver within New York as well. Like they can run through... Um, UPS, FedEx, or whatever it is. So what was the idea of going through something like New York first that might already have some sort of system set up like this versus something like 
uh, Texas, right, which is a huge market, mm-hmm. but has a lot more regulation versus something like DC, which is really like the Wild West. Yeah, there's a few things to to pick apart there. So we actually got off the ground in terms of our model in Boston. And then we went to New York to get the model blessed, one, because of their size, and then two, the regulatory credibility when they put their stamp on something. But what was unique about Massachusetts and one of those fortuitous things that happens, uh, it is an incredibly regulatory-driven market for alcohol. So if you're compliant here, you've almost kind of fit the lowest common denominator for the rest of the states, and you can roll it out from there. So I think that was a, a big fortuitous bounce in our direction at the beginning. The second thing we learned from a consumer side of things, every state is so different in how consumers buy alcohol because of the regulations. In New York, as you're mentioning, you have a wine and spirits store and a beer store. You have a license cap so that you don't have chains, but you have a ton of independence, which is obviously very different than Texas or California, where you have a BevMo or some of these larger chains out there. So the consumer experience really needed to adapt on where you are and who are you going to be working with on the retail side. The East Coast was set up pretty pretty darn effectively for us because we could work with independents, learn how to bring on a smaller shop, make a real difference in their business. And then as we rolled out to larger cities and states, um, we were more ready. We were more ready to have conversations with with some of the bigger retailers. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we should, most, most people that are in the retail market should really start looking at is how do you become a little bit more competitive in today's market? And just being on the corner and relying on your neighbors to kind of keep you in business it might not be able to look the thing that's going to keep you floating for much longer. So when you go and you have these conversations, or at least in the very beginning, I'm sure you have a, a whole team that have these conversations now with liquor stores around the country. What's your, what's your big selling point to them to say like, hey, like we can bring your inventory online. Um, do you integrate with like their existing POS or does it say like, hey, you need to have a new POS system that, that we we run and manage? Like, how does all that work? There's a lot to it, but you appeal to them first as a consumer and you start to think about other industries and how they've come online and where do you buy airline tickets? Where do you buy hotels? How do you buy or how do you shop um, for clothes online? Aggregator model and starting to get them thinking about this is going to happen in this space. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so you you appeal to them on a consumer level to start. The next thing you're really dealing with is fear. You're dealing with fear of competition. You're dealing with fear of transparency of pricing. And that's how far back this industry goes is, you know, they still believe that people can't get their prices if they wanted to walk in. It gets a little irrational, but then you can speak to them around numbers now. And this has obviously changed over seven years, but you can talk to them about incremental consumers that they wouldn't have um, been able to serve otherwise. And we have data behind that. You can talk to them about how a marketplace actually elevates to the experience to the point where multiple stores are able to succeed at a level that if you were the only one doing delivery in this area, we wouldn't be able to get those consumers to not only come and check out the site, but also come back and shop from you in the future. Uh, and then the last thing is, is we need to be more than just the consumer marketplace. And so when you're talking about point of sale systems, we need to be able to elevate and, and help them generate more profit from their in-store business. That things, There's things like... Um, Uh, the catalog and the accuracy of what's on their shelves and how they actually think about that. There's data on consumer trends and what they want to put on their shelves at what price, at what time. So there's a lot of things as a tech company that we have access to that can really elevate their entire business. And it's a whole package that when you work with Drizzly, um, makes you a better retailer. So you brought up uh, pricing. Uh, One thing that we've noticed a a trend in um, liquor retailers is there's a lot of price gouging. Do you have any restrictions or anything like that with the retailers you work with that you set them within like a um, close to the SRP or anything like that? Yeah, it's a good question. So in some states, the price in store is legally mandated to be the price online. And I, I could give it's a couple states. It's not the majority by any means. So that one takes care of itself. But our job is really... Um, to bring their in-store experience online in the way they want to do it. Our approach to um, price gouging is not necessarily to give them mandates on what to price it or to keep it in certain things. It's to insert competition. It's to have a marketplace to keep them honest to the point where um, if you are going to try to price things 40-50% up because they're rare and there are other people that have that same item, they're obviously not going to purchase yours. And so it really just gets back to an efficient marketplace idea and, and making sure that consumers are the arbiter of uh, what's successful and not regulations or Drizzly or someone else. 
And so to kind of like tackle or should I say like to tack on to that one a little bit, when we think about pricing, we've actually had uh, K&L, we've had A-Spirits on the show because we kind of talked about like, what does it look like to be in an online first kind of market, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like that's going to be the new consumer drive. That's the new demand. If if Amazon's next, whatever's going to be next, if it's Drizzly next, whatever it's going to be, like that online marketplace is really where people are going to go for. And so the other thing about the pricing aspect is this is like when you put your prices online, you're creating this level of transparency uh, because you know exactly like what somebody's charging for a, a 750 ml of early times versus what somebody else is charging. Does that ever like upset any retailers and they're like, wait a second, like how are they able to charge less than I can? Like what's their, what's their distributor charging them versus what they're charging me? Do you, do you get caught in any of those kind of situations? There's definitely, uh, yes. I mean, transparency introduces more knowledge into the marketplace for sure. Are we introduced to that conversation? Not necessarily, but I'll tell you one of the biggest learnings from early days of Drizzly from switching from a single store experience. I am shopping from uh, the store across the street who I've been brought online through Drizzly to a marketplace where I'm shopping by brand first. And then Drizzly's telling you the best way to access that product, whether it be selection, you can only get it at one place, price, delivery, all those different things. Um, and, and so what's come out of that though, one store may price something as a margin builder. Another one actually may price it as a loss leader. And the various strategies within those retailers really come to fruition when you break down those physical barriers and put all of those things on one page together. So it's not necessarily that, hey, I'm getting a worse deal from my distributor, but it starts to highlight what someone does in-store online in a much, much more transparent way. And you compete a little differently online. And so it started to be an education of, this is how I went in-store, help me win online. And there's usually an avenue to do that. That's the bigger conversation, more so than I'm getting gouged by my distributor. Yeah, that was actually going to be my question. How, as a liquor store, do you compete online? It, it kind of reminds me of the car business, you know, like mm-hmm. it, the car industry, you, you used to have to rely on a salesman and try to whittle them down and beat them down to get the, you know, the most fair price. But now everybody knows the price. What can a store do to compete? You know, if, if you guys are, de- and what parameters are you kind of determining that makes a store better or worse for someone? Sure. And it's one of those things when you when you come on a Drizzly, you're going to see a bunch of information. And that's really where where I think we can win in the long run um, is asymmetric access to information. And that includes price. That includes delivery times. That includes your selection, whether it be long tail wines or high end and rare bourbons. And so highlighting that is a big piece of it. And then you start to think about other people that are starting to focus in this industry. I mean, grocery, for example, is starting to come online for alcohol in a bigger way. Total Wine is being very aggressive. They are feel independents are feeling that distinctly in the cities that we're seeing that. But there are advantages to being an independent liquor store. Location, for example, uh, you have access to consumers within 20, 30, or 40 minutes that a Total Wine could never get to in that time frame. Uh, not necessarily selling private label. Private label online is a little bit more difficult. And so what of your selection do you want to highlight? What are your higher margin products? And how do we highlight those to the consumers you're willing to speak to? And then also providing them tools. Um, again, going back to this data conversation, there's not a whole lot informing what they put on their shelves, except for that salesman walking in. Drizzly can bring transparency to that as well. What are consumers in this area buying? What are the trends? How should you think about pricing it? And how do you build that into an overall larger strategy to have a successful business in a, in a rapidly changing environment, which we're seeing, depending on which city, different rates, but it's happening. So you brought up data, you keep bringing up data. Um, and we are in the age of big data where we are dominated by it. Tell, talk, walk us through like how you use that data. Do you sell it to the, to the suppliers? Do you feed it into like a market research hub? How are you using uh, the data you're acquiring at point of sale? Almost all the data we acquire, we are using to inform our own offering. And, and so it's simple e-commerce things like how do we construct a better flow to increase conversion, your likelihood to hit checkout? How do we start moving shelves around in what is effectively a digital liquor store to be more personalized to you so that the next time you come back in, We're more apt to show you the right product at the right time at the right price. That's really what we use the data for. Going back to retailers and brands, we can aggregate it and anonymize it and give them 
larger trends that could be cut down by geography, but never anything that's highlighting a particular store or a particular consumer, more so just highlighting a different slice of the market. And one of the interesting things about the alcohol industry is you have your Nielsen's and your IRIs and, and some of the bigger data providers who have a um, interesting offering within the alcohol space, but they're big gaps. The independent liquor store market where you don't have receipt data or you don't have consistency of point of sale systems, those are not places. So New York is an entire market. Those are not places that people have great insight to. And Drizzly, um, through its 350 retailers that we partner with in New York City, can start to really build transparency into a market that has otherwise been only aggregated into depletion data or some other things. So there's an aggregated view for the external partners. For us internally, it's how do we create a better e-commerce experience. Did you catch so, all that, Fred? <laughs> actually, you know what's fascinating? <laughs> that, was, that was a lot to take in right there. I used to cover uh, retail. I used to be the uh, tech writer for uh, the National Retail Federation's magazine stores, and I felt myself going back to the old days um, listening to you talk there. Um, and follow up on, on that data is that you know we don't really a, a lot of the a lot of the numbers that are that are out there that are public. They they kind of like you're saying like the Nielsen numbers, they're not really complete. So my question to you is like, why don't you guys release these numbers? Why don't you make them public? Since you probably do have the best database of sales numbers of anybody out there. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. My question to you is like, why don't you guys release these numbers? Why don't you make them public? Since you probably do, have the best database of sales numbers of anybody out there. You're hitting on a great theme. And we actually do believe in the democratization of our data just because we think it's going to make all of us better, including the consumer experience. So we, we released something a long time ago called the data distillery. Uh, we are thinking about how to do this in a larger way, uh, not only for trend data, but again, how do we create something that becomes a backbone for the industry so that we are sharing data? Not because I think some people think by holding on to it, you're more valuable. Our view is by using it to make the industry more effective, the consumers will win, which is ultimately what we're all about. One, one quick anecdote. I mean, we see trends earlier. Our average consumer is a millennial, uh, older millennial, 32, 34 years old, 50, 50 male, female. And these are folks who are trendsetters. These are social people. And so Rosé, a couple of years ago, I mean, Seltzer took off about eight months online before it did um, on you know, in the physical world. So it's just one of those things where we can really inform based on the trendsetters that purchase on our platform brands and how they should be thinking about the world. And then a larger play as to what you're saying, Fred, around using data to benefit the industry. Fred, you actually, you know, and you kind of covered my question, but I guess as a liquor store owner, do I have, 
you know, do I have the same access to that data as every single store within your system or is it store specific or regional specific? Um, and like from a CR, is it, do you have a CRM base as well with Drizzly for the retailer? We do. We do. So if you're a Drizzly retailer, we have a, uh, a tool that's actually just called Drizzly Retailer, and that gives you access to all of your sales data, all of the customers that are purchasing from you, and then also um, an aggregated view on some of these consumer trends and thoughts around the inventory you should be stocking. So that is absolutely part of being uh, a partner with Drizzly. And the CRM side, uh, we're obviously aggregating eyeballs on our site. We're aggregating consumers and want to speak to them in an intelligent way. A piece of what we're doing in 2020 is starting to take our technology and utilizing that to allow retailers to do this themselves. So you can imagine white-labeled websites that um, allow them to merchandise their own products more effectively and almost have control of their own website, but utilizing Drizzly assets. And you can start to see where that would go in terms of uh, CRM capability, the ability to talk to their consumers in a more discreet way versus the aggregator marketplace that is Drizzly. So there's a lot within that, but yes, I can see us more and more powering some of their e-commerce needs not only to benefit us, but I think it's a necessity for the market to benefit consumers. I also think it's it's a necessity too, because of course, it, for me, it always comes back to tech and, you know, you go and you look at some websites and I mean, some of them are just, they're just archaic, right? You know, a lot of liquor stores, these mom and pop shops that try to build a website, there's a flash banner on it, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, that's why, you know, at least in, not in this particular segment, but this is why a lot of people that are creating their own businesses, they look at things like Shopify because it makes their, uh, you know, their system a lot easier. I mean, are, is that like one of the big selling points that you have for Drizzly to a lot of these retailers is like, let's, let's take you at least to the, uh, to 2020 now. Yeah, it's a great point. So it wasn't when we started, uh, to be honest, we thought more about how to aggregate consumer demand in our marketplace. And so that's a little bit different. That's almost like the Amazon side of things of we'll collect the eyeballs, we'll build the technology, and we're going to utilize your physical shelf space on the other side. The selling point there is just incremental consumers, incremental profit. So that, that works. On the other side, there's so much we can do to look like Shopify to be a platform, which is an entirely different business model, but one that we really think we can enable the 100,000 independent retailers out there to serve customers. And, and I keep saying customers because... Despite everything else that goes on within our business, um, we talk a lot about internally the reason for our existence, our purpose behind everything is to um, to be there for the moments that matter and the people who create them. And yes, we sell alcohol and help people transact online, but we're there to actually provide a better consumer experience and, and allow them the time and the freedom and uh, to find that right bottle at the right price. I mean, we, we all know how cool that can be. So it, it all comes back to democratizing what we do to the benefit of the end consumer. Well, uh, first off, hats off for trying to make change, positive change in this world that's always outdated. That's We know it's, we know it's inc insanely difficult to actually do. But I think there's one aspect that, you know, we kind of want to uh, touch on as well, because it is a, it is a part of the Drizzly system. And I know it's not just, you know, basically creating the catalog for, uh, for what the consumer sees, but there, there is a component of actually how it is delivered to the end consumer. So kind of touch on a little bit about, you know, if you said the Postmates, the, um, that sort of model of like, how does it, once, once a, a transaction happens online, at what point is Drizzly done with it and it's either on the retailer or it's on whomever to get that into the hands of the consumer? So when someone hits checkout, uh, what we have done is send that order through a gateway to the merchant of record, which is the retailer itself. And so just one data point there. If you're shopping from ABC Liquors, that is the merchant of record on your credit card. Drizzly is not within that flow of funds at any point. What we do do on the other side is build the technology so that if the retailer wants to do the delivery, they have the ability to do that. It almost is like the Uber driver app to some extent for this space. And that's about 92% of our orders. So most of this is retailer delivery using our technology. And we are providing the customer support throughout that entire experience until um, the bottle has received at its location. The third parties are interesting just because delivery is such a uh, an expensive piece of this whole thing. And they've added scale and efficiency in a way that you almost need multiple categories, multiple verticals to do. And you can imagine a mom and pop getting frustrated on a 7, 7 p.m. Friday, uh, too many orders coming from Drizzly, too many people internally. It would be nice to be able to have a courier of some sort. So that's what we built in there. 
all tech-based. We have full visibility into when it reaches the consumer's hands, inclusive of um, ID verification. So we're always a part of it. And at the same time, we're not the ones physically handing the bottle off. So you're like a, almost like a marketplace, right? As uh, for, for getting those together. I mean, is, I mean, is it really like you're, you're popping out and it's like saying like, okay, like Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash, like whoever's going to answer this, like come and pick this thing up. We don't put it out to bid per se, but we do work with most of the partners you just said. But uh, that was also an idea, to be honest. And there's people who have created that. We, we found that having one option per store is a little bit better just because you get used to who they are and, and do things in a, in a bit simpler way. And so I guess uh, another question that I kind of want, actually, Fred, go ahead and because I'm sure it's uh, the business side of this. So go ahead and answer. It is actually the business side. Uh, so you, you talked about how you kind of laid the framework for this whole, um, really, for what is, an, is a new category that's kind of changing the space. And now you got competition. You got all kinds of people coming on board, Minibar and a few others. So how do you uh, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you do you do you have to compete with them at individual retailers? Do you guys share retailers? How does that work with your competition? Well, Fred, I mean, going back to 2013 when we um, back when in the we got back them. in the Stone Ages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I got some grit in that. That was pretty good. Uh, in 2013, when we kind of announced the model, there were about 50 Me Too's out there. Minibar, absolutely being one of them, and, and have a lot of respect for what they've done. That phase isn't necessarily over at any time, but the big boys are now here, and so we're actually thinking about competition, not necessarily for just alcohol specific, but the logistics firms. I mean, Uber Eats has tried to do alcohol delivery 10 different times. Uh, Instacart has prioritized alcohol and e-commerce. Walmart and grocers are starting to think about how to do this in a bigger way. Total Wine. So you can imagine that there's, um, we almost need to find a way to succeed. And this is what we talk about a lot internally. In five, six, seven years, every bottle on every shelf could be transacted online and sent to a consumer, whether it be delivery, pickup, or shipping. And in that world, how does your business model succeed? And that's really where Jizzly's being built for, not necessarily the Me Too's today that are you know, predominantly just about delivery and convenience uh, within that value proposition. At what point do you stop? You know, you talked about some pretty big names and they're trying to get in the space. What point do you stop competing and just start? Uh, if you can't beat them, join them in that, that regard. Is that the end goal? seems like with most tech companies, they want to get uh, absorbed or bought out, you know, at some point, have an exit strategy. Yeah. I mean, there's always um, there's always thoughts on an exit strategy. But to be honest, we're being built for the long haul. And alcohol is a bit, a bit unique. I mean, there is a moat from regulation that comes from um, embracing them rather than trying to knock down these laws. Now, if tomorrow the three tiers went away, and it looked a lot more like selling electronics online, I might have a different tune as to about where we fit in the long run. But I do think we can stake out a place here for the long term. And a lot of that comes back to kind of this underpinning of how do you take regulation and code that into your technology? And then also, how do you take a mom and pop and entirely fragmented retail base and then aggregate that in such a way using your catalog, your tech, that we know where every bottle is in the country, its price and how to get it to a consumer, what you build on top of that within your product experience um, just kind of opens up the world to you. And I just think that's something entirely differentiated and difficult to replicate. All that being said, not looking to sell by any means today, but uh, it's obviously something you sit up a little straighter when Amazon gets into your space. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. Yeah. I mean, I think I think Amazon might have been one of the big names that, you know, people are going to recognize and, you know, they're they're definitely trying to get into the space as well. And so, I, you know, another question that that kind of follows along with that is um, you know, when we start looking at, you know, Amazon, you start looking at Instacart and all these different kinds of companies that, that are trying to get into it. And if and, and you kind of said something like if the three tier system is goes down tomorrow, like what what would that really mean for you all? And if Basically, this gets democratized to the point that it is just like buying an, you know, buying an electronic off of Amazon. Like, what, what is that? Is that truly like game in or uh, game over? I mean, are you really reliant on the three tier system to uh, to make this happen? At this point, no. But I think two things become obvious. Right now, brands are about as far away that you can be from a consumer when you're a big CPG. Right. So they are unbelievable storytellers and brand builders from the awareness message side of things. 
But it's not like Procter & Gamble and Walmart, where you have co-located offices and you're trying to figure out where to put things on shelves and incentive bases and you know, you're know you buying shelf space and tap space and the rest. That doesn't happen. Well, at least not um, legally, at least today. Uh, and if that goes away, then the way brands work with retailers changes overnight. And Drizzly has a value proposition there, but it does need to shift pretty significantly. The other side of the coin, though, is um, we almost need to plan for the three tiers to go away because Drizzly is successful when the product experience, the consumer experience is so good that they no longer need to go to the store. And that goes back to not just the selection and the availability and the transparency of price, but then packaging that in such a way that, again, uh, almost guided shopping or personalization to where you almost feel like you're missing out if you're not going to Drizzly because you learn so much about your product. There's a crazy stat we just learned that you know 40, 45% of our consumers are using Drizzly as a discovery tool and not necessarily transacting on the platform. I think that's fascinating. I think that's something that we can really lean into to drive value for the consumers at the end of the day. And again, I think that's one of those unique things that regulation be damned, we can do better than anyone else. And how does your game change if shipping laws are broken down? Now, let's, let's say the three-tier system's still there and it's great. However, now that you know New York can ship to California, Wisconsin can go to Florida, and liquor stores can now compete you know, across state lines. Like, what, is, what does that do for your business? I think it'd be a little bit of the Wild West to start. I think you're going to start to see the macro or the larger chains um, assert price dominance because they can then start to think of their business on a national scale versus distributor to distributor and state by state. Uh, I think we could really take advantage of that world, to be honest. Again, I keep beating on the same point, but if we know what's in 40,000 stores, we should be able to surface all of the items at the best price possible for you. Almost kind of this notion of tell us what you want. We'll figure out the best way for you to get it. And I think that's one in which we would really succeed. Shipping's not a huge piece of our business today, but that speaks to the use case we're going after more so than the consumer demand inherent within shipping. So I think we could really take advantage of it. It would, um, it would require a little bit of adaptation in how we do things. All right. I want to jump back into some data stuff. This is, I think this is uh, some fun, uh, this will be fun for you. What is your best-selling bourbon based on your data? Um, it's a little different than you might think. It's a brand that we've done a lot of work with um, to try to figure out how it resonates with the millennial consumer. But Bullet Bourbon was our largest brand in 2019. I can uh, even I, bigger I, than it's a popular brand. Yeah, but it's you know it's not um, it's not necessarily Makers or Jim or some of those other ones. So yeah. Still a top 10 bourbon from a sales perspective. Now, what are the, the top five selling spirits? So like from a categorical perspective. Category of spirits or the spirit themselves? The, so the, no, the category of spirits. So like tequila, rum, bourbon, like what, what's your top five there? Um, I might get this wrong, but we'll see here. Um, I'd go with uh, vodka. I'd actually go with bourbon. Um, rum, tequila, although I think our tequila selection has been incredibly high end and what we're actually selling, which has kind of been interesting. And then I'll check for you here in a second on, on a fifth. I don't think I know the fifth off the top of my head. You, you said it wrong. It, it goes bourbon, 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 right? Brown, brown, brown and brown. <laughs> At least that's what we want to hear. We want I, to didn't hear. He, I heard the, 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 his mic cut out there when he said another word. I don't remember. <laughs> that, I that think number you might one. have bleeped me out, but it's funny. I've, I've sworn on this and I didn't hear any negative reaction. Now I say anything other than bourbon and there we go. <laughs> yeah. You get around Fred, that's, that's the type of uh, banter you're going to get out of him. And, and so, you know, as we, uh, I, I, I kind of want to like ask a question because we really didn't ask it in the very top of this because you said you were a bourbon fan. Like what's, uh, what's, what's kind of like your go-to? You got some favorites because I, I see behind you, you got a Coors Light can behind there. I figure, I figure we could, I mean, you're in the, you're in the, the spirits business. Like let's, let's get some bourbon on those shelves back there. Oh, don't worry. We do have that. This is just one of the rooms. Um, well, so I like to play nice because we work with a bunch of different brands in their businesses. I, I'm a big Booker's fan. I love 100 proof Booker's over a glass of ice when I go home. Uh, I'd say that's more of a Friday night drink than anything else, but uh, that's probably my go-to if I'm if I'm opening something on the regular. So, what do you mean by by working with brands? Like, what is what does that mean to you all? 
Well, I think just two things. Uh, the first would be on the data side. So these are folks who are looking to learn about consumer trends, figure out how their brands are resonating with consumers. And it's less even about the online spend. It's taking those learnings and apply it to the offline. And uh, again, massive media budgets and trying to make them even 1% more efficient by learning about the online consumer in depth. That's a big piece of it. The second piece is uh, Drizzly's the fastest growing company and the fastest growing channel for alcohol. So to that extent, they are trying to figure out how they're going to win online, knowing that in five years, 10, 12% of all alcohol is going to be sold online. So Drizzly can be uh, almost a test and learn area for them. You can speak to consumers in a personalized way. You, uh, you could sell advertising. We haven't done much of that to date. But all of these things are basically a, um, a lab for them to figure out how their brands can come online and either keep or grow their market share versus the physical world. So what was that? You say 10 to 12% is what it's going to be in the future? Yeah. If you look at some of the larger data providers, um, they're projecting $13, $14 billion in 2023. I'm slightly less ambitious than that. Um, but you're seeing this industry come online at 40 50% year over year, which is significant. We do think it's going to be the fastest growing CPG over the next three to five years. So what, what do you all need to do to try to position yourselves to say, like, we can grow this beyond 10 to 12%? Like, how do... How do we change the minds of the consumer to say like, oh, we can we can get this to 20 to 25%. Like, what do you think has to change in the culture to try and get people to start buying more online? I think you're actually hitting at it uh, pretty good there, which is awareness. Uh, not many people know that you're allowed to buy alcohol online. And even if you do, there hasn't been a way to do so that should take away from going to the local liquor store. I mean, that's that's a behavior that's worked for decades on decades. And so to break that behavior, you need to build something that is not one or two times more effective than going to the store, but 10x. And really, that's where the product offering uh, needs to elevate the purchasing to where I don't need to leave my home. Or if I did, I need to at least see what's online to really inform my experience in a way that I could never get on store. So it's a combination of awareness and then a product offering that is just so superior going to the store that they're going to order it online. Again, utilizing that store though. Oh, for sure. And, and I don't know. I mean, I guess there is, there is also something about, you know, being a consumer, going to the store, looking at it, holding in your hand mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe that'll just become a thing of the past. Like, what do you, what do you try to do to try to like counteract like some arguments like that? I mean, but then again, there's also like, all right, uh, you know, people used to, I love to have the, the the feel of holding a newspaper in their hand, but nobody really does that a lot anymore either. Kenny, I still read the newspaper. I got to be honest. <laughs> I still read a physical newspaper. Corey, you're killing me, man. Like you're young, you're young and hip, man. You shouldn't be reading a newspaper. Yeah, like that, no one, man. no that's one a, I know would call me hip, but that's all right. I wrote um, for newspapers for a long time. Do you, do you have to bash on them? I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> there was there's a key word in there that was it was wrote long time. wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but to your to your larger point, I don't want to necessarily be in a world where you can't feel a physical bottle, where you can't go look at it. I want to lean into that. And so while the physical store might need to change, I hope it still exists and I do think it should exist, but in a little bit different format. Instead of trying to have 5,000 or 10,000 items on your shelves and trying to have that inventory and that working capital and play that game, I'd love to see a world where you can almost have a retailer that has an e-commerce DNA from day one. And then they have the experiential side of going in, being able to taste products, being an elevated experience, knowing that on the back end, you can get any of those products delivered to you, shipped to you, or walk away with them from a warehouse around the corner. So they almost become showrooms informed by the DNA of e-commerce versus having to compete in the current way of, of doing things today. So, so Drizzly has been very active on the... You know, on the on the trade front, where what do you do from a legislative perspective? Do you, are you do you guys have a lobby firm that you're spending time in D.C.? Do you do you lobby in uh, every state that you're in? Talk talk us through that particular process from the governing perspective. It, it's a core competency of ours. It's really what we were built on. So we have an internal team composed of. Um, a general counsel who has industry affairs experience, and then also uh, the woman I mentioned, Jackie Flug, who is on the New York State Liquor Authority. And they're really quarterbacking state by state, both um, almost legal protection side of things and then an advocacy side for what we believe to be the best way to bring this industry online. Uh, we have lobbyists in every state that 
there is legislation moving. We are in those rooms. And our real thesis here is the engagement is important because, I mean, we spend all day thinking about consumers and the intersection of their needs and desires with a controlled and regulated substance. We want to be a part of that, and we think we can actually help doing so. So that actually speaks to um, something else we're doing, which is taking our platform into the cannabis world uh, in the near future as well. Oh, that's, I think you hit on a pretty good topic there because we've, we've actually covered on the podcast before, what's the effect of cannabis and the, uh, the, you know, this, the distilled spirits market. What do you kind of see as the the cannabis market kind of being an opportunity? Well, I think it's a massive opportunity. And and we started, you know, talking about market size. Alcohol is $130 billion sold off premise each year, 2% online. So you can do that math. We think cannabis is going to be uh, a 30, maybe $35 billion legal market within five to seven years, but you're talking 40%, maybe even 50% online. It's a different consumer behavior and there's no ingrained, I know how to go to a store and there's no um, kind of behavior you need to, to break off. There's actually a stigma from going to a store. So all of that coming together, we think is a great opportunity. We do think it needs to be informed by uh, alcohol legislation and the know-how behind bringing alcohol online. It, it's just a, it needs to be treated with respect as a category. And that's one of the things we think we can really bring to that conversation. Okay. So I have a request for your cannabis stuff, your, your delivery. You need to have guys on, with backpacks on bicycles, uh, do, doing the deliveries through, through town. <laughs> you mean like the movie half Baked? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that wouldn't make but it for a legal team. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely wouldn't. But you, you could absolutely work beside me because I come up with these ideas all day long and get shot down. So it's good. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I mean, there's another thing that, you know, even with the cannabis market, I mean, and if you're if you're always ingrained in these legal discussions, do you find it like fascinating that the legalization of cannabis and the laws change like that I mean, it it is happening fast, way faster than any kind of deregulation of any alcohol laws, any alcohol laws that have been there. Do you do you find that kind of fascinating? I mean, there's states that don't allow alcohol to be sold online that are going to legalize cannabis. I mean, cannabis e-commerce before alcohol. I mean, it, it, it's so backwards, it's unbelievable. And yet they f- they factor into the same conversation, if not the same agencies or legislators thinking about it. Uh, there's usually tied at the hip. And so I, I do think they will push each other along. But I don't ever want to live in a world where they're not thought of separately than other commodity goods that are not controlled. And, and we get to see it, right? I mean, we, we do occupy an important position, but underage usage um, and just the various respects that come with being in a controlled industry, I, they do need to be treated with respect. Well, awesome. And I think that will, uh, I got to leave one last question for you since you are ingrained in all this. So Let's put a let's put a blank canvas on here. If you were to picture like the perfect commerce market of like what alcohol delivery looks like, like what is it in your head? No other constrictions, the perfect alcohol market? Yeah, like it it could be getting rid of three-tier system, it's opening up shipping, like what what is your what is your 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 kind of dream here of how this would all work and create a better experience for everybody else out there? I would love to shop at a place that had access to any bottle across the entire country, any bottle whatsoever, the rarest of the rare, all the way down to the Bud Lights of the world, and know the best way to receive that product. And, and that could be different from me to you. It could be price. It could be I want to receive it in the mail versus go pick it up and enjoy it with someone else. But that's really what I get excited about is if I knew where everything was, every single bottle and a consumer got to decide, not a distributor, not regulations, not anything else, but a consumer got to, got to decide what they want and when they want it. That's a world I could get pretty excited about online. Fantastic. Corey, thank you again for coming on the show today. It was great to kind of hear your story, the story of Drizzly and really what you all are doing to advance this marketplace a lot further too. So uh, I, I did have one last question and you, you, you mentioned that this, you had these uh, great trend spotters. What's mm-hmm. the trend right now that you're seeing that in eight months, you know, we can cash in on? This may not sound that unusual to you. I mean, just you can you, you can read about it in the newspaper now. But low ABV, low caloric intake, things that are part of the health movement are absolutely taking off. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it speaks to a larger trend, though, which I believe is people are drinking 
sometimes more quality or a little bit more um, specific on more frequent occasions. So that's drinking less, but drinking a little bit better. I think that's something we're seeing as a larger trend, low ABV and low calorie being a piece of that. Okay. I must be swimming upstream because for me, it's like, give me the highest proof bourbon. And I love, I love my stouts that are like 13, 14% ABV. Well, but I think, I think you always have to put us bourbon people in a different box because we're just flat out weird. That's true. We don't follow the trends. That is true. So, Corey, thank you again for coming on the show today. It was really was a pleasure to have you and like again, knowing more about you and the company. Uh, if people want to know more about Drizzly, how they can order online, everything like that, give them an idea of, of what our listeners can go do. Yeah, drizzly.com is our website. Uh, can walk you through what's available in your area. And if not, what could be available for shipping. And also have an app on both iOS and Android. And, and that brings the world of online alcohol to your doorstep. There you go. And if you're a small online retailer, you now have an opportunity to start capturing the next wave in the market. So I appreciate it. Uh, Make sure you go and check out drizzly.com. You can also check out all their social media handles. I'm sure they're everywhere as well. Make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit on us, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you like what you hear, make sure you support us, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. All right, that's it for this week. Cheers, y'all. And we'll see you next time.